this morning. We're singing the Battle Hymn of the Republic as we remember this is the week of July 4th, Independence Day. Um, and uh, we have uh, had the opportunity this past Thursday to remember our independence, to remember the freedom that we have as Americans. Uh, it's interesting as we are about to start in the book of Judges um, that Israel as a nation really in their in a very real sense at the end of the uh, conquest of Joshua becomes an independent nation really for the first time ever if you think about it. Uh, Abraham's family was of course just a family unit. When, when they actually became a people group, a nation, it was in Egypt when they were slaves. And Israel uh, were in Egypt and they were slaves for so long and during that time they grew and grew and grew until they were a nation. And then after that they, they leave Egypt but they weren't really a nation in the sense that they had a place to dwell. They were wandering through the wilderness, wandering to the promised land and then back and around the promised land as they were wandering because of their disobedience. And finally then we looked at the book of Joshua and we see that they finally come to the promised land that God had promised Abraham. They, they come in, they have conquest, they settle the land. Uh, and now we come to the book of Judges and Israel is its own nation. It's ready to go forward really in a very real sense. It's their independence day. It's time for them to celebrate the fact that they are a nation. Now it's interesting that we use the word in, Independence Day, and of course in our, in our country we refer to that as the time that we gained independence from, uh, from England and, and, from, and we became a nation and not just a colonies of, other, of another nation. We remember that as independence, but it's interesting that the word independence, when it comes to Israel, they do actually take this as independence, and that's a bad thing, in the sense of Israel, what we're going to see through the book of Judges is they decide that they're no longer going to be dependent upon God, but they're going to be independent. That they will walk away from God to be independent and to strive after their own longings, their own freedoms, instead of being dependent upon God. See, really, the the fact that Judges is here, the fact that Joshua just had great victory and Israel had great victory in Joshua was not to allow them to be independent, but it was to remind them to continue to be dependent upon God. And I won't get too far ahead other than to say that it's interesting as we think about Israel and their nation and the way that they decide to go. And it's not so much different than maybe even our country who at one point... uh, it, when, it, when we were founded, had a lot of Christian principles behind it, and it was, uh, there was godly values that gu- guided this nation. And now I think, in our independence, we have lost our dependence upon God. That's a good discussion for another time, but this morning we're going to see that Israel is going through this very thing. And so with that in our, in our mindset, as we're coming into the book of Judges, this is a new series, we just finished Joshua, and you think, okay, great, new book, new series, new subject. Truth of the matter is actually you look at the book of Judges and it's just a continuation of Joshua. We, Joshua tells us the, the ups and downs of the Israelites as they have the conquest over the Canaanites, but Judges now tells us what happens immediately following that. And actually in, in the next week or two we're going to see that there's a, a few passages that actually overlap one another. And the chronology gets a little confusing, but the understanding is is what, Je- what Joshua was ending the period of the patriarchs, it was ending the period of the promises to get to the promised land. Now Judges starts this new idea of now they're in the promised land and how are they going to handle that. 
But just in case you weren't here for Joshua, or because, or maybe you just forgot some pieces, just let's go back for what we've seen so far, real quick, from the book of Joshua. We see that at the beginning of Joshua, Moses dies, and Joshua is given responsibility to take possession of Canaan, the promised land that was promised to Abraham. And so Joshua is given this responsibility from God, and Joshua does lead Israel over the Jordan River into the promised land. He leads Israel to victory over all the people of Canaan, all the people that were giants, all the people that were greater than Israel, that had more military might, that were uh, more uh, politically independent. And even when they, when they joined together in alliances, God gave victory to Israel as Joshua led them. So as they took the land of Canaan, all the land of Canaan was given as an inheritance. They have a conquest over the whole land. Joshua gives every tribe a piece of this new land. But we're told at the end of Joshua, and this is going to be important, at the end of Joshua we are told that not all the Canaanites had yet been driven out of the land. That although they had possession of the land, although they had control over the land, there were still pockets of people that were Canaanites that God said you need to drive them out completely. Because if you don't drive out the Canaanites completely, their gods and their culture is going to pollute the holiness of Israel. And that's exactly what we're going to see happen, as that's kind of a spoiler. We'll get there as we go through the book of Judges. And so, all of it is given, but not all of the people have been driven out that God has told them to do. So Joshua then, at the end of Joshua, commissions Israel to finish the conquest in obedience to God, to continue to obey God, and as they obey God, then the conquest will continue, they will drive out the rest of the people, and it will be complete. And we're told in Joshua that it's very clear that if you obey, the Lord will be with you and he will drive out the people before you. So that's what Joshua tells the people before he dies. And we've seen through the whole book of Joshua, and we can't lose this, that Joshua is not the hero. God is, and that God is the one who has given Joshua the land. God is the one who has given Israel the land. It is his gift that he gave to Israel, and Joshua is just playing a part as he led Israel in to take the land. But with that in mind, as God is the one who has given the land, God also is the one with the ability and also the promise, or threat if you want to say it that way, of taking the land away from Israel if they turn their backs on him and they don't obey him. It's the idea of a covenant, that I am doing these things for you. Now, because I've done these things for you, I expect then that you obey me. That's what God says. And if you don't, then the very land that I gave you, I can take back. And that's where we're left in Joshua And it seems as Joshua dies and as Israel has been told this, and they have made the claim that they will serve God and serve God alone. They have made that claim verbally. Now in Joshua, or as in Judges, as we move on, we're going to see whether or not what they said, that they were going to follow God completely, actually came true. And if you know anything about the book of Judges or anything about Israel's history, you will know that this is not going to go in a good direction. So as we come into Judges, let's keep in mind that this is going to be a little bit of a depressing book as we see Israel not doing what they said they would do, and vice versa, God doing exactly what he said he would do if they didn't obey. And so we're going to take some time to look at that. Uh, Real quick, some background to Judges, just the uh, historical background so you know where the time frame and those type of things. First of all, the author of Judges is fairly unknown. There's a lot of debate about who wrote this. We know that God is the ultimate author of all scripture, but who actually penned the words. 
we're not exactly sure. There's a very strong case to be made for Samuel. It seems to be that the author is pointing towards a godly king that would be David, which we know Samuel was very involved with David. So there's a good chance it could be Samuel as he's writing some of the history to inspire Israel to want a godly king that would follow God. Maybe not, it could be somebody else, or even it's likely that there was a number of authors that came together because this book was written over a long period of time. Maybe there was different authors that penned different parts of this book. In the end, it doesn't really matter which human person penned this because we know that this is God's word to us and there's a reason it's here. Uh, but the date of this, uh, the, I'll just gonna say this about the date, uh, the events took place over the span of 350 years. 350 years from when the, the conquest of Canaan until just about when David is about to take the throne. So there is uh, just about when the kingship is, supposed to, is going to come to Israel. So it's about 350 years. That's important to remember. This does not all happen within just a few years. So we want to keep that in context. 350 years of history happens in the book of Judges. So as we go through this, we need to keep that in mind. Uh, and that's going to be important as we go. That This isn't all happening in just a few weeks. This is happening over 350 years. By the time we get to Samson, he's going to be a contemporary of Samuel. And we know, if you know anything about scripture, you know that Samuel is the one who ends up anointing both Saul and then uh, David to the kingship. All right, so that's the, the general time setting. Uh, the reason why we have judges, uh, the reason that most people believe and I believe that we have judges here in scripture is to re- a reminder to the people Like in history, it was a reminder written to the people of Israel that they needed a godly king that would follow after Yahweh, that would be fully committed to God. Because without a king who is fully committed to God, the nation will not be fully committed to God. And we will see that come out as we look through the book of Judges. So it's a reminder to the people of Israel that they need a godly king who will follow God. But it's even deeper than that. For us, I believe it shows us very clearly that we are in need of a king that is the king, which is Jesus Christ. And we'll see as we go through the Bible that this is appointed out, that everything in the Old Testament is foreshadowing the coming of Jesus. And so we understand that the ultimate godly king is God himself in the form of Jesus Christ. And so therefore, this book is to remind us as readers that no man is, can be the one who can lead us into the right relationship with God, but only God himself. And hope we'll see that as we look at this book. And finally, the theme, reason and theme are pretty close, but the theme as it comes out, as you're going to see, this the very basic in a very literal historical way, the theme we're going to see is that Israel compromises their courage in Yahweh more and more as time goes on. Throughout this book, you're going to see it's going to be a downward, downward slope. There'll be peaks, but then we'll go deeper into a valley, and another peak, but go deeper into a valley. And by the time we're done, we're going to start up here and go all the way down here. Israel is going to be in the worst place they can possibly be, and we're going to see how God has to work in the life of Israel as they have this problem with independence and rebellion. And so the theme really is that Israel is going to compromise their courage in God more and more as the time goes on. See, Joshua was all about courage. And if we remember what courage is all about, it's about trusting God, obeying God, listening to God, being on God's side and leading the way with his strength. The opposite of courage is compromise, to fall to other gods, to fall to other things that become more important than God himself. 
And we'll see that through the book of Judges. We'll see that a whole lot more as we continue on in this book, so I won't belabor that any longer. But the main thought for this morning, what I want to look at from chapter 1, verse 1, through the first part of chapter 2, chapter 2 through verse 5, I want to look at this section, we're going to break it in parts, and we're going to see what happens immediately following the death of Joshua. How does Israel respond to Joshua's commission? Remember going back to that, Joshua says, you know, obey God and you can then continue to take the land. So do the people listen to Joshua? And what we're going to see today is that the transition from Joshua's leadership went from good to bad to ugly. We're going to see that it already in the very first chapter in a few verses in, in chapter 2 that we see Israel's de- dependence upon God and the listening, the transition from Joshua going from good to bad to ugly. And we're going to see that this morning and draw some conclusions from that. So the first passage I want to read, we're just going to read the first 18 verses of chapter 1. First 18 verses of chapter 1, if you'll join with me. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up to me from the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. And Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated ten thousand of them at Bezek. And they found Adonai Bezek at, the, at Bezek, and fought against him, and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Uh, Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him, and caught him, and cut, him off, cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off, used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Then the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem, and captured it, and struck it with the edge of the sword, and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now, now the name of Hebron was formerly Kirith Arba. But they defeated Sheshai and Iamon and Talami. And from, and from there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give to him Achash, or Achsah, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, uh, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Achshah, the son of, or the daughter, for a wife. And she said to him, She urged her to ask her father for a field. And he dismounted from her donkey. And Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have set me in the land of the Negeb. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of the Palms into the wilderness of, of Judah, which lies in the Negeb near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited uh, Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. All right, we're going to stop there, and I apologize for my bad uh, pronunciations. Uh, But we see a lot happening here in verses 1 through 18. And we see that it starts good. The the transition from Joshua starts really good. Israel starts uh, starts well as they trust God for victory. First thing we see them doing right after Joshua is dead, after the death of Joshua, we see the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. This is a good thing. The people sought the Lord and they listened to what he said. 
They ask God, who should go forward and continue? Who should continue the conquest? And the Lord says, and we don't know if this is through a prophet or maybe through the oracles that are part of the tabernacle. We're not exactly sure. But somehow God communicates to them. says, uh, Judah will be the first to go. Judah will go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Now, when it says his, and it's referring to Judah and Simeon, let's keep in mind, uh, these aren't, aren't necessarily specific people names, but these are names of the tribes of Israel. And so the tribe of Judah is given the first, uh, the first commission, if you will, to continue the conquest, which, by the way, is very interesting. If you think about Judah, you know that David comes from Judah, and ultimately Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. From the very beginning of the nation of Israel, Judah takes a prominent role here in Israel. So we see that people sought the Lord and listened to him. That's a good thing. Another good thing is we see Judah has great victories. And Judah also uh, has unity with his other tribes. He actually comes and asks for help from Simeon. Now some people say that this is actually an act of disobedience because Judah should have done it himself. We don't know this to be true. I don't think God necessarily said, Judah, you have to do this alone. Don't, don't make any alliances with other tribes of Israel. I think this is a good military strategy. I also think this is a good sign of unity. But we see this is, I, so I believe this is a good thing. They're working together and Judah with, with the, with the tribe, uh, of Simeon, uh, they come, on, they come together, they work together and they have great victories. Verses 3 through 18. There's victory after victory after victory. We see this king that they first, uh, dispose of. They cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Why do that? Well, that was a symbol. And it was a symbol to show that this king will no longer be able to make war against other nations. This king will no longer be able to make war against Israel. And that is a symbol of why they do that. And I want to just say as an aside, it's interesting that Adonai Bezek understands something. That the reason that he is being judged and his people have been defeated is because of the way he has acted. When he talks about the fact that 70 kings, he's cut off their thumbs and big toes. And then he used them to pick up scraps at his table, obviously. And then he says, as I have done, so God has repaid me. He understands that what God is doing in Canaan is because of the sin of Canaan. An unbeliever understands why this is happening to him. And he ends up dying. But we see all these victories that Judah has as Simeon joins him. And so, so far, things are going great. You know, they're listening to God. They're doing what he said. And now they're having great victories. And in the midst of the victories, we see a couple of these stories that come out. We're not going to park on them too long. But we see Caleb's family, this idea that Caleb asked for somebody to, uh, whoever can take this land can have my daughter as a bride. And this was common in, uh, in this culture. This was common things to do. Uh, and then Othniel, uh, he rises up and he indeed captures the land that Caleb has asked for. And then uh, his Caleb's daughter asks for springs, and he gives her springs when she's in the Negev desert area. And so what we see here is a picture of blessing, that, that Caleb, who we know has been faithful to God, now it's continuing through his family, and blessing is being poured upon his family. And then we also see my very favorite people of all uh, in the Bible, the Kenites. Um, for, yeah. 
for obvious reasons, but the Kenites, uh, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, is a Kenite, and his line is with Judah at this point. Now, keep in mind, they are not, um, they are not ethnically necessarily Hebrews. They're not ethnically Israelites, and yet they are Israelites here because they're with Judah and they have the same blessing. But the point of all this is to show that Israel and the people that are with Israel and the people that are on Israel's side are being blessed. There is great blessing happening here. As was promised to Abraham, <clears throat> that he would be blessed and those who bless him would be blessed. And we see blessing happening. And there is blessing happening and there is victory happening and they are listening to God. If we ended right here, we'd be like, they get it. Israel is doing great. Good job, Israel. You've remembered God and he's giving you victory. And then we start to see some things change. And it's very subtle at first. So we're going to, from the good, now to the bad. The bad uh, is that Israel stops short of completely driving out the Canaanites, verses 19 through 36. 19 through 36, let's read those together. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. (coughs) Excuse me. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem, so the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city formerly was Luz. And the spies saw a man man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz, and it is Luz to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth-Sheen and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblium and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land." When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. I think I went ahead, did I? Or not? No, I'm going to... No, I'm going all the way to the end. Then Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, and so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, or the inhabitants of Nahalol, or the Canaanites, and the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or Alab, or Akzib, or Helba, or Aphek of Rehob. And the Asherites lived among the Canaanites and the the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, so they lived among the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became subject to forth subject to forced labor for them. And the Amorites passed the people of Dan back into the hill country, oppressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. And the Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Harry's, in Aijalon, and in Shelbim, and from the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim to the Selah and upward. All right, once again, I'm sorry. Um, but as we go through this, we see something happening. The first thing we see right off the bat in verse 19 is Judah, and then following Benjamin, do not finish their victories. They don't finish their victories. They stop short. Uh, in, in verse 19, and the Lord is with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because 
They had chariots of iron. Now, I've got to pause here. It's a confusing passage. So it looks like, face value, God failed. It says God's with them, but then they can't quite get the job done. Because of the chariots of, uh, the chariots of iron, they can't take the plane. Now, this is an interesting thing, and there's a lot of debate about this, what's happening here, and there's a good chance that maybe uh, maybe uh, the Israelites have already began some uh, false god worship. They've been worshiping some other idols, and maybe this is a judgment. But we're not told that specifically here. But what I do know is going back to the book of Joshua, there is something that is made very, very clear. When God is on your side, you win. So this says God was on their side, but they were not able to drive out the, the, the chariots. What I have to believe as we look at this, and I believe we have historical precedent as we look at Joshua, is that there is some reason now that Judah, as he goes out to fight, stops short out of some reason, maybe fear, or maybe it's, but whatever it is, it is not complete dependence upon God. My guess is, looking at this, uh, that uh, they went forward, they conquered the easy parts, if you will, but then when it got hard, they backed away and they retreated. I don't think this was an issue of they actually didn't have the ability to win because that would say that God doesn't have the ability to win. We know that God is sovereign over all and can do anything and everything he pleases. And so therefore, it's not a problem with God here. It must be a problem with the Israelites. It must be a problem with Judah. And I believe, going back to Joshua, they didn't have the courage that they were called to have. They didn't have full devotion. They didn't have full faith. They didn't totally trust God to give them the victory. And so they stop short. They stop short for whatever reason. And it's told to us that they stop short because of the chariots. Because they were outnumbered and outgunned, they stopped. And we're going to see this is going to create lots of problems later on. As if you would think about this, actually who they're fighting is going to be some of the Philistines that we'll see giving Israel tons of problems throughout history. But we also see Benjamin does the same thing. We're not told exactly why this happens, but Benjamin goes into Jerusalem and drives out some of the people, but not all of the people. And we're told that, and we're like, okay, well, okay, I understand. They might leave some people behind. So then we see next Joseph's tribes, and I say that because it says uh, the house of Joseph. That's Ephraim and Manasseh. They're two separate tribes that came from Joseph. They both also failed to drive out Canaanites from their land in verses 22 through 29. We see that they have these battles, but they leave people behind. And actually, uh, the first one looks good on the surface when we read about um, <clears throat> when we read about how they together uh, the house of Joseph scouts out Bethel. They see a man coming out, and they say, "Show us a way into the city, and we'll deal kindly with you." And he shows them how to get in. They sneak in. They kill everybody, but they let him go, and he goes and sets up a city in the Hittites. He's a Canaanite that now has set up a city that the Israelites let go. They were not called to make covenants like this they went on their own wisdom and asked for this man to show them a way to sneak in so they got a victory but in doing so they didn't have complete victory because they left that man and his family alive who then started a city that would one day be a canaanite city that would go against them and so we see that right even in that little story it seems like victory but it's not total victory manasseh has victories but it doesn't drive out all the inhabitants. 
says it puts him into forced labor, which leads us to the rest of the tribes. Not only did Judah and Benjamin fail, and Joseph's tribes, but all the other tribes fail as they chose to enslave people instead of to destroy them. Verses 30 through 36, we see this. Time and time again, these tribes have partial victories. They don't drive everyone out, but they make them their slaves. Now, from, from our standpoint, from a human standpoint, looking at this, we would think, wow, they've really got a good strategy here. Why kill the people when you can use them? Why, why drive them out if they can be good for you? And that's exactly what Israel does. They say, wait a minute, we can have these slaves work for us, so we don't have to do all this work. Why would we drive them out when we've got free labor? And that's exactly what Israel is doing here. And Israel, not meaning to, I don't think they had it in their mind to think, oh, I'm going to purposely disobey God. But Israel, they were told to drive out the people, but they don't drive out the people. Why? Well, this is like a little bit of speculation on my part, but I believe it's selfish convenience. Selfish convenience trumps obedience in their mind. That it's more important to have my selfish convenience to be fulfilled than to obey God no matter what. Now, as I say that, I think of my life, and I think you can think of yours, and think of times where we've done the exact same thing. We know God has asked us to do something, but something else is just a little bit easier. Something else is just a little bit more logical to our minds, and so we follow our way instead of his way, and that's what we see Israel doing. So things have started good, now they've gotten bad, but then in, verse, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, things get ugly. All right, Things get real bad, and it's because God comes on the scene to, to drop a message that is not a good message. The ugly comes as Israel has abandoned Yahweh. Israel has abandoned God, the the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I have brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land which I swore to give your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. And you shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done Now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Bochim means weeping, weepers. They weep, but why do they weep? Well, let's see the ugly. That we see that God pronounces judgment on Israel for disobedience. Verses 1 through 3 here in chapter 2. The angel of the Lord comes from Gilgal, the place where the covenants have been uh, seen. And he comes to Bochim where they are. And he says, I, he, I brought you up from Egypt. I gave you freedom. And you've thrown it away because you have not obeyed my voice. That's what he says. Now the angel of the Lord, many people believe, could be the pre-incarnate form of the Son of God who would be Jesus when he came as a man. Maybe it is, maybe it's not, but what we do know is this is a message from God. A message from God himself. And he says, I brought you up from Egypt, I brought you into this land, and now you've disobeyed me. And he pronounces a curse, and he says, no longer am I going to drive the people out before you, but they're going to be a thorn to you, and their gods are going to create problems. 
Now, if we didn't have Joshua, this would be like, why would God just, yeah, that seems like a pretty knee-jerk reaction just to throw that out there. But we know Joshua. He's already told them this is what he's going to do. They knew what they were getting into. He said, look, if you don't obey me, you're not going to be able to have all the land and the people are going to be a problem for you. He said that in Joshua, and now it's coming true in Judges. They didn't take God seriously at his word, and they disobeyed because of their selfish convenience. So God pronounces judgment on Israel for their disobedience. The fact that they've made covenants that they weren't meant to make, that they obviously, apparently, from this, have not destroyed the altars. This makes sense. If you enslave a people, you'd still keep their, they're allowed to keep their gods. So they were enslaved, but they're still worshiping false gods. They have not obeyed the voice of the Lord. And so God has to judge them. You see here that God is not the problem here. Israel has been the one that has chosen to break their covenant with the Lord. Israel has chosen to break their covenant. Because God says, listen, what I told you is I will never break my covenant with you. But then you go and you break it. So God has not broken his promise, but the people have broken their promise. And then we see Israel desperately tries to appease God in verses 4 and 5. Too little too late in this case. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. They weep. They weep. And they sacrifice to the Lord, and they know what they've given up because they have walked away from God, and they have chosen to disobey God. They know that they have given it up, and they weep. Now, one question can come up of this. Well, well, if they're sorrowful for their sin, and if they're weeping and they're sacrificing to God, then why wouldn't God just forgive them and let them continue their conquest? Well, first of all, they've already broken their promise. That's one thing. But the other thing about this is, I don't really believe this is genuine. And you ask why? Well, you'll see over the next several weeks as we look through the book of Judges. Because this is the theme of this book, that the people walk away from God. When things don't go their way, they come back. And then when things go their way, they walk away. And when things don't go their way, they come back. And this is a nonstop cycle through the book of Judges. So I don't believe this is even true sorrow, true repentance. I think they've realized they've made a mistake and they're trying to appease God. But God's judgment will still come true because they broke the covenant they had with him. So we've seen Judges 1 through Judges 2, 5. We've seen it go from good to bad to ugly, and the rest of the book pretty much stays there. It stays get uglier and uglier and uglier until at the end of Judges, we're just going to leave Judges with a feeling of absolute hopelessness. But even in the hopelessness that we'll see in Judges, there's one theme that will come out, and we'll talk about this more in a, a week or two. A theme that's going to come out is this. Although Israel is disobedient, And although Israel has turned their back on God, God still shows mercy and grace to his people. He brings judges, which is the point of this book, by the way. The name judges is because that's temporary rulers of Israel, temporary deliverers of Israel. But temporary is the key word. God sends a temporary deliverer, but that deliverer never can keep the deliverance. And then it goes back and forth, back and forth, and all these deliverers may come. But God has mercy and grace to give them the deliverer that they need, but that just doesn't last. But God shows his grace and mercy even in the midst of their disobedience. Which gets us to our conclusion in a sense. 
Because I want to start by, you know, as we ask questions at the end of each sermon, have you, have you started out well in your relationship with God? You know, we talk about Israel starting well. well you, there's a starting point. And have you experienced a relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Have you started that? Because ultimately, as we talk about deliverers, people who would deliver from enemies and deliver from sin, that's what the judges do, but they only do it for a temporary time. Jesus does it for all time. Jesus is a deliverer that is always a deliverer, and he can deliver you from your sin, from your disobedience. If you've walked away from God and gone your own way and turned your back on him, it's not too late. Jesus will deliver you if you come to him in faith. You trust in his perfect life, his death for you that we're going to celebrate during communion in just a few minutes, that as we remember his death and then his resurrection, the fact that he ascended and is up in heaven that he is ready to receive us when he comes again. That is the truth that we can hold to, and he is the great deliverer. So we see Israel's disobedience, and maybe you're feeling a little bad about maybe the disobedience in your life. God has an answer, and that is through Jesus, that he died for your sins so that you could have a new life, new hope. You don't have to be hopeless, but you can have real hope through Jesus. And if you want to know more about that, talk to me. Talk to someone who brought you. Talk to someone else who is here. Here that knows Jesus. But then for the rest of us here, maybe you've started your relationship with Christ, I want to ask this question. And that question is, have you or have I, have we made compromises in our obedience to Christ? You see, Israel didn't set out to be disobedient. Israel didn't, as soon as Joshua died, it's not like Israel said, yeah, he's dead, let's go our own way. Let's get rid of, let's get rid of Joshua, let's go crazy. That's not, what, that's not what Israel did. They actually started really good. They started by seeking the Lord. But little by little by little by little, we see Israel disobeying God. It seems innocent at first, but by the time we end Judges, we're going to see that they are fully, fully given themselves to false gods. They are doing everything that is only right in their own eyes. There's gruesome things happening in Israel, and it's all because it started with just a little compromise of, oh, their chariots are just a little too strong for us. And it started with just little compromises of convenience. And so my question to us is, have we made compromises for convenience' sake? Have we made compromises? The verse that comes to mind, and I know it doesn't specifically talk about convenience, but 1 John has always been something that has stuck out to me. Uh, 1 John chapter 2. It's very clear what God expects when we follow him in 1 John chapter 2, looking at verses 15 through 17. It says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Israel forgot this. Israel let the world creep in. Israel let false gods creep in. They let their own convenience creep in. They let their own logic creep in. They really let the world in because the world said what's wise is to take people and enslave them, not to drive them out. And so they made little compromises and it's going to end up destroying them. I just want to plead with you and with all of us, if we're making compromises in our life, no matter how small they may be, they will end up destroying you. 
You may be saved and you may get to go to heaven. You might have, but you're going to have issues in your life and God is going to want to bring you back to himself, not to punish you, but to discipline you, to draw you back. And life is not going to be good if you are making compromises in your obedience to Christ. And finally, the last question I want to ask this morning. We looked at Israel had abandoned God. But you know, Israel, if you asked Israel at the time, they'd probably say it this way. They probably wouldn't necessarily say until they're told by the angel of the Lord that they were abandoning God. But when they started to experience not having full victories, they might have looked to God and said, why have you abandoned us? But the truth of the matter is, is that God did not abandon Israel. Israel abandoned him. And this is the last question I want to ask us. Are you in a place in your life I've been here before, but are you in a place in your life where you feel that God has abandoned you? Maybe because of hardships, maybe something else. Maybe you just don't have the desire you used to have for God, and you say, he must have abandoned me. Make sure, because God does not abandon his people, make sure that it's not about him abandoning you, but make sure that you haven't abandoned him. Hebrews 3.12 We've been in Hebrews a few times, and it makes reference back to Israel several times and their disobedience. But Hebrews 3, 12, this is a powerful verse. It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in you, lest there, let there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care, brothers, lest there be in, any, in you any evil, unbelieving heart. Examine ourselves, which we'll have an opportunity to do as we come to communion. Examine ourselves to see. If we feel that God has abandoned us, then maybe, just maybe, we've abandoned him. And let us run back. Let us repent. Let us come to him in humility and ask him for help. And he will give it because he is a God of mercy and grace. As we move to communion, that's something to keep in our minds. 